You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's April 23rd. As many school districts are still planning for a full-time return to in-person instruction, Learning losses students have experienced during the pandemic remain a concern for many experts, teachers, and parents. Summer learning programs could be one way to help students recover from these losses. In fact, RAND research has shown that summer programs can produce positive outcomes for children in math and reading. But the potential benefits of summer programs are often hampered by logistical missteps, like late buses, missing instructional materials, and frequent class interruptions. To avoid these issues, RAND experts offer three tips for schools. First, start planning and staffing early. Successful summer programs are best planned in advance. Districts should dedicate at least one person to start planning the program, ideally by January, but at least well before April. Of course, that means planning for this summer should have started months ago, but it won't be long before planning for next year's programming should begin. Second, don't expect teachers to write their own lessons. Our research showed that schools that required or allowed teachers to write their own lesson plans led to lower quality, or even no lessons at all. Instead, programs should use a pre-existing curriculum developed for summer or have district curriculum coordinators create them. And third, make programs at least five weeks long. Research findings suggest that summer programs that were at least five weeks were most successful. In fact, creating a six-week program is preferable because student attendance likely won't be perfect. When summer programs are planned early, use pre-selected curricula, and run for a sufficient amount of time, teachers can use instructional time well, and students can better engage and learn. And while these programs do take a considerable amount of effort to get off the ground, they're worth it. The stakes are high for students, especially the most disadvantaged students, who are most likely to fall behind when they're not in the classroom. More and more, America's competitors seek to gain an advantage through gray zone activities, acts of aggression that remain below the threshold of outright warfare. A new RAND report examines how the U.S. and its allies and partners are deterring such aggression. The authors focus on Chinese aggression against the Senkaku Islands, Russian aggression against the Baltics, and North Korean aggression against South Korea. Overall, the authors concluded that U.S. and partner deterrence of gray zone activities in each of these areas is reasonably strong. Take the Senkaku Islands, for example, where U.S. and Japanese deterrence is in good shape. China's motivation to use force to take the islands appears to be very low, and both the U.S. and Japan have the ability to generate significant support for response options in the South China Sea. However, there are opportunities to bolster U.S. deterrence, and the authors identified some particular areas of weakness as well. For example, when it comes to Russia's aggression against the Baltic states, the U.S. and NATO, along with local partners, have not clearly communicated which outcomes they will not accept, making it unclear exactly what they are trying to deter. Based on their findings, the authors also highlighted some implications for the U.S. Army. 
For instance, it's important to maintain a local presence and posture when conveying likely responses to gray zone aggression. Moving into the American middle class and staying there is arguably more difficult than it's ever been. In a new paper, Rand experts detail the subtle but important changes that are responsible for this shift. For instance, the number of middle-income jobs has declined, and the good jobs that remain require more skills or education. Additionally, many people who are employed now have jobs that are less stable, provide fewer benefits, and may not lead to long-term careers. What might it take to broaden access to the middle class? Well, right now, most of the pathways to the middle class lead through education. So, what's needed is increased access to education. But we also need to rethink how workers can acquire the skills they need to maintain a middle-class living. Many Americans will not complete a four-year course of study, and may instead opt for an occupational license or certification. So, it's important to ensure that these training programs align with the skills that employers are looking for. China and Iran recently signed an agreement that some are calling a game changer. The details of the deal are still murky, but it's based on a sizable amount of Chinese investment in Iran in exchange for a guaranteed and possibly discounted supply of Iranian oil over a 25-year period. So, is it a game changer? Probably not, according to Rand experts. Although both China and Iran would like to sideline American power and influence, they don't share enough interests to support a lasting partnership. For one, Iran is just one part of China's strategy in the Middle East. Beijing has to balance relationships with multiple countries that don't see eye to eye, including Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Israel. Iran is not China's number one economic partner in the region either. China sells more arms to U.S. partners, including Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, than it does to Iran. It's also important to remember that not every move by China in the region will undermine U.S. interests. In fact, China and the U.S. may even have some overlapping interests. Take non-proliferation, for example. Neither country would benefit from Iran developing nuclear weapons, which would raise tensions and could cause a regional arms race. There could be room for U.S.-China cooperation on this front. Instead of spending energy and scarce resources on infeasible goals, such as trying to push Beijing out of the Middle East, Washington could instead focus on developing its own clear-eyed view about what it seeks to accomplish in the region and defend those interests vigorously. But the U.S. should also work with China in the Middle East when it's useful to do so. No commute. No rush to get kids off to school. No need to get dressed up for work. For many of us, life during the pandemic has meant a slower, more leisurely morning routine. But a post-COVID nineteen world could speed things back up, adding more to that morning to-do list and requiring an earlier alarm. This return to normal life could be a difficult transition. That's why Rand sleep scientist Wendy Troxell recommends making small adjustments to your mornings now to prepare. For example, try showering or washing your face right after getting up. Turn on some upbeat music, or increase your physical activity within the first hour of being awake. Also important, and perhaps challenging for some, resist the urge to hit the snooze button. 
By taking small steps like these, you can help ensure that your wake-up time and your wake-up routine stay on track. This is key to good sleep, says Troxel. Quote, from a sleep perspective, how you wake up and the consistency of your wake-up time is the single most important cue for setting your internal biological clock, which in turn is critical for setting you up for sleep success at night. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week.